This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome back. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breganridge with you here on this Friday afternoon. 403-974-8255 is the number. 974-TALK. A lot more to get to uh, uh, in this hour. Later on, a conversation about music and AI. It's pretty crazy where the technology is at. The ability to basically recreate the voice of singers. Just kind of create new content if you're so inclined. What kind of legal and even ethical issues does that raise? We'll hear from uh, broadcaster Alan Cross coming up after 2.30. Off the top in the shower, though, a couple of things I want to get into. The uh, issue of equalization has come up today suddenly. Maybe we'll touch on that. But uh, our next guest did a really interesting piece this week at The Hub, thehub.ca, looking at how the federal government is kind of shifting its approach to carbon emissions. As you know, I mean, there's there's a carbon levy, a carbon tax that, that exists federally. Not every province, but uh, it does apply here in most of the country. The idea is that we put a price on carbon. And it's not specific to where that carbon is emitted or from what sector that carbon is emitted. It's a price on carbon, which is a pretty more or less a more simplistic approach. And probably a more effective approach. But we see things starting to shift in a different direction. Subsidies, regulations, and soon enough, a cap on emissions from the oil and gas sector. Our next guest says this is a departure from the government's climate policy and frankly is a bad idea. Joining us on the line here this afternoon is Trevor Toome, Associate Professor the Department of Economics, University of Calgary, Research Fellow at the School of Public Policy. Professor Toome, great to have you back with us here. Welcome to the program. Really good to be here. Thanks for having me. First of all, and I saw the uh, email land in my inbox earlier this afternoon from the Alberta government. I saw you, you tweet a bit about it. I'm not sure how much time you've had to, to go through this, but mm-hmm. equalization has kind of been off the radar a little bit in Alberta, but the uh, province today releasing... A policy paper, some ideas for changing or reforming equalization. Uh, What were your initial impressions of this? Well, luckily, I did get an advanced copy, so I have had a chance to read the whole thing. Um, So what the the government really put out today comes on the heels of just two days ago, us learning that the federal government's kind of quietly extended the current formula and equalization by another five years beyond next. So all the way out through to 2029, I think that came as a surprise. And, and so what the government of Alberta put out was uh, something that they were hoping to maybe spark a conversation about equalization and, and different ways of doing it. And the idea they put on the table is an interesting one. It would be the base payments based on the overall economic strength of a province rather than the slightly more complex way we go about doing it now, which is measuring fiscal capacity, resource revenues, making adjustments and and so on. So, so really putting out there an idea that would be very, very simple and something that I think could be more easily understood by Canadians overall and potentially might have better incentives, you know, not discouraging certain types of development uh, in other provinces. 
Which is interesting because, yeah, right now, so I mean, it essentially comes down to wages or the median wage of, of any given province sort of speaks to what kind of revenue it's able to generate through taxation. But you know, when you start factoring in resource revenues and, and other considerations, it, it adds some complexity, I, I think, to the formula. So how, how would this be different? Well, anytime you sit down and go item by item, calculating out what a province has at its disposal, what we call it tax base, and then figuring out how much it would raise if it had average tax rates, this creates a potential incentive for a province to artificially shrink its tax base. So many point to Quebec and its uh, potential underpricing of electricity there, mm-hmm. uh, but also challenges like Newfoundland and Labrador face in bringing on offshore production uh, a couple of decades ago. Anytime you increase the size of your underlying tax base, you're going to shrink the amount of equalization that you receive. Now, this idea wouldn't fully eliminate that, but by basing payments on the overall economy of a province, the entire GDP uh, per capita of a province, that's much more difficult for a government to influence relative to the tax base of a particular instrument or a certain uh, resource projects and so on. So by broadening the program to basically as broad as you could possibly imagine it, uh, then it really limits the scope for a government to game out that formula. Interesting. So would it necessarily reduce overall costs of infl- uh, of equalization? Well, it, no, it wouldn't necessarily do that. So that's where the government of Alberta here put out some other ideas as well, in addition to just shifting to a macro formula. So yeah, in principle, a macro formula doesn't itself shrink the program. It just changes how allocations are mm-hmm. done. Uh, other things that the government of Alberta here put on the table is maybe moving away from comparing anyone to the national average, but instead use just the middle six provinces to come up with a measure of where we think uh, a normal level of uh, revenue and and fiscal capacity are, that would shrink the size of the program dramatically, or not topping people up to the average, but to just like 5% lower than the average, that would shrink the program even more. So there's a number of proposals that the government put in. The big one is shifting to a macro formula, and I think that's a a completely legitimate uh, proposal to put forward. Others are probably not really on the table here, non-starters federally, like dramatically shrinking the scale of the program. Um, But it's certainly an interesting paper. I think uh, putting the politics aside, I think it's something that that Albertans and Canadians should read and and consider, because it's an area where normally we just have equalization as a political football. And I think this is a really productive move by the Alberta government. Yeah, which is true. I mean, you know, there is still the the point, though, that whatever we do, like even if we made these changes, that doesn't really mean anything for Alberta. It doesn't leave anything here. We we don't receive, wouldn't receive equalization either way. That's true. But one, I guess, counterpoint there is if we shrink the size of the program, then it creates fiscal room that the federal government could use to do other things that might have implications for Alberta. So it, it might get connected into other types of policy, like expanding the stabilization program, something that at least the former Premier Kenny would speak to uh, quite frequently as just one example. Or Scott Moe a couple of years ago putting out an idea to uh, just 
distribute the savings in an equal per capita manner like we do health and social transfers. So that's where I think the fiscal benefit would come in for Alberta. Mm-hmm. Interesting points. Let's talk about your piece this week at thehub.ca and you know where we're starting to see some change from the federal government in terms of how it, it is uh, aspiring to reduce emissions. We've gone from the simplicity of a price on carbon to much more uh, involved, I guess, regulations, yeah. subsidies, and soon to be a, a cap on emissions from the oil and gas sector. Why, why is this a worrying change in your view? So I think for a couple of reasons. First, I think it's undeniable that the feds have moved away from broad carbon pricing as the backbone of, of their climate policy. They, they rarely even speak about it. Even their their budget only had, has brief offhanded reference to references to it. And the emphasis is now on regulations, the clean fuel standard, for example, clean electricity regulations coming, regulations on passenger vehicles and electrification uh, there, large subsidies through the latest federal budget adding up to potentially 70 or some estimates have it as high as $80 billion over 10 years to try and match what the U.S. is doing to subsidize investment and in different areas and the cap on on oil and gas emissions has been proposed and they're committed to bringing that forward they said early this year so it might be very soon yeah. uh, that we that we see that so these are measures that lower emissions but tend to come with higher costs uh, than broader based policies you know put aside carbon taxes I know there's uh, a range of opinions about the merits of of that, the broad-based policies that treat all tons in a uniform way tend to lower emissions in a lower-cost way than narrow, sector-specific, targeted approaches do. Um, and an oil and gas emissions cap, I think, would potentially come, depending on its design, with very high costs just because of the nature of the sector that's involved. Right. And I guess the question is, what, what does that accomplish? As you write in your piece, why incur $100 in cost to avoid a ton in one activity when you could avoid a similar ton for $50 somewhere else? Because after yeah. all, a ton is a ton here. And a great a great example of that here is is we do have a $65 a ton minimum carbon price nationally that applies except for Quebec, where the price is a little under $30 a ton now. And so that difference there means that we could lower emissions more if we want by bringing Quebec up to the national minimum average price that prevails everywhere else. We don't need to lower emissions by pursuing high-cost policies uh, if some low-cost ones are right there on the table. Well, something else that's relevant, you you kind of alluded to it, where carbon taxes are polarizing, controversial, and maybe, maybe not even popular, arguably. And in a way, the government's kind of undermining the case for a price on carbon, right? By imposing these regulations and caps and subsidies, they're, they're kind of sending a message that we don't need carbon taxes to lower emissions. Exactly, exactly. And we, we are seeing increasing conversations around that because of what the United States has done with the, the President Biden. They're opting for you know, regulations and subsidies to lower emissions there and, and potentially lowering emissions in a big way, but without a carbon tax. And so that allows critics of the carbon tax in Canada to say, we can do it without a carbon tax. And of course, that's true. Of course, we can lower emissions without a carbon tax. It just tends to come with a, a higher cost. And so for the federal government to be moving away uh, from broad-based policies, it might lead Canadians to, I, I guess, reject the underlying or the original rationale for the carbon tax. I think putting that aside, you know, it's fair enough to oppose a carbon tax, but 
if we're going to do it through a regulatory um, approach, then those should still be broad-based and try and treat all tons equally, regardless of what sector they're coming from or what region they're coming from. And one particular or two particular risks of the oil and gas cap is that it might lead many to see climate change as the fault of oil and gas rather than the fault of all of our behavior and all the emissions that uh, we create. And that you know, might also undermine support for broad-based policies. Then I think second, the legal justification for the federal government's national carbon price in the first place uh, involved an argument that uniformity was required to achieve a national objective. And so the more that the federal government moves away from uniform national policies to sector-specific, highly regional targeted policies, it might undermine its own legal argument behind the carbon tax itself. Part of the argument for, you know, this policy, the cap, and, and some of these other policies seems to be the idea that we need to be more aggressive, that we're not doing enough, that, you know, the previous approach was insufficient. But is is that true? Well, the policies that have been announced already up through last year, 2022, are already putting Canada, by the government's own projections, on a path to 30% below 2005 by 2030, so the original Paris objective. So the, Doing more, you know, it's fair enough if one wants to, to do less than that or more than that. You know, reasonable people can, can disagree. If we want to ratchet up the overall stringency, though, then again, we should do it in a way that's uniform and broad-based rather than putting more of a burden on some emissions than others. Because from the perspective of, of climate change, any ton is going to contribute the same amount yeah. to climate change, regardless of where it happened to come from. So I think we should be thinking um, about these policies more in terms of how we lower emissions. Are we doing it with costs that are unnecessarily high, doing it in ways that potentially undermine the public support for broader-based policies, or uh, even in the case of the oil and gas emissions cap, potentially inflaming regional tensions needlessly? Um, So some policies are just better uh, to consider than others. Some uh, yeah, not sure why the federal government's pursuing this particular one. Yeah. I guess we'll see when they come out with that announcement. Yeah, indeed we will. In the meantime, as mentioned, this piece up at thehub.ca. Trevor, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. I always appreciate the insight. My pleasure. Take All care. the best. You too. Uh, Trevor Toom, Associate Professor, Economics, University of Calgary, Research Fellow at the School of Public Policy. It's a really interesting piece from him at the Hub this week on why capping oil and gas emissions is such a bad idea. Uh, He says to effectively and efficiently lower our greenhouse gas emissions, our priority should be to have consistent treatment of emissions across all regions and sectors. A cap on oil and gas emissions moves us further from this basic principle, and it comes with a high cost. Uh, It's bad politics, and it's bad policy. Yeah, look, maybe Drake's not your thing. Uh, Certainly popular with uh, the youngsters these days, but that's not Drake. Trust me, that sounds like Drake, but that's not Drake. There's a song that uh, was recently posted on YouTube and on streaming channels called Heart on My Sleeve. Created by somebody called Ghostwriter. Whoever this person is, 
used AI technology to basically construct a song from whole cloth with some rapping vocals sounding like they came from Drake, some singing vocals coming from another famous Canadian, The Weeknd, and put it all together into this song, Hard on My Sleeve, it was called. And it kind of took off. I mean, these are both popular artists, so something that sounds like it's from them is going to take off. But again, it's not Drake, it's not The Weeknd. It's AI. And so it's a really interesting illustration of what this technology is currently capable of, raising questions about what it's going to be capable of, you know, 5, 10, 15 years down the road. And some of the legal and ethical questions this all raises. Universal Music, which represents those artists, uh, you know, they freaked out. They were not happy. So the streaming services, uh, even now YouTube, they've all taken this down. But, I mean, they didn't copy a song or whoever this is. But they definitely use these artist voices. So is that, is that plagiarism? Is that copyright violation? Is it just unethical? Raises some big questions. Somebody who's been uh, following all of this, writing about it this week at a journal of musicalthings.com is Alan Cross, music writer, broadcaster, historian, host of the Ongoing History of New Music podcast. Alan, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, thanks for having me. A lot of people are really, really interested in this topic. Oh, yeah, it is. I mean, it's, it's hugely fascinating, right? And I mean, you know, there's potential good, the creativity that could come from this, but there's a lot of big potential downsides to this. Do you kind of lean one way or the other at this point? I'm, I'm sort of in the middle right now, but I'm starting to see the positive aspects to this. There, this is analogous to something that we had to deal with back in the late 70s and the early 80s when people started constructing songs based on samples taken from other people's work. And there, was, there were a lot of lawsuits. There were records that were withdrawn from sale. There was all kinds of weeping and gnashing of teeth saying that this is the end of creativity. Well, that's not what, it, what happened. After everybody figured out the legality of it and how to license samples, uh, it all of a sudden took off. And a very large part of what became hip-hop is a result of, of samples, although there are many other forms of music that also deal with samples. And the, the law is settled. Precedents have been made. Uh, you can license samples from artists. So if you want to use, let's say, an ACDC guitar riff in your song, uh, you can, providing you're willing to pay the price that ACDC is asking for that particular sample. So uh, with, with sampling, we saw a lot of things really take off and right now, you know, I can't, it's hard to imagine modern music without the ability to sample a pre-existing work. This may be something similar. Uh, the, the, the weeping and gnashing of teeth here is people are using the sound of someone, someone famous, uh, manipulating it for their own purposes, and then making money off that manipulation without dealing with the person who's voice you you took in the first place so um right now the the, the record labels um uh, first reaction is to you know shut this down legally um and what they're probably going to do is say okay we see this as a potential new revenue stream so let's go to the courts let's see what can be done because there is nothing in copyright right now that deals with this right uh and and this is this is a multi-territory thing. It's going you know it's going to be one thing in the EU. It's going to be another thing in, in the UK. And Canada will have one thing, and the US will have one thing. In Canada, for example, you can't copyright something if it's made by a machine. It has to be a human thing. 
in the U.S., it's kind of murky as to where copyright law stands. So once that's sorted out, I can see this actually fueling some kind of a musical boom. Uh, and, you know, I'll give you an example. We've been waiting for an Oasis reunion record. Yeah. Uh, and then there, there was this band called Breezer from the U.K. who say that they got tired of waiting for Oasis to get back together. So they created the Oasis album that never was. About you know, and, and what they did was they, they wrote some, some music and they then trained some artificial intelligence to sound like singer Liam Gallagher, put everything together and put it up online as AI, I can't even say it, AI-sys. Yeah. Get it? See what yep. they did there? And it's really, really good. And, and even Liam Gallagher, uh, you know, who's, who hears himself singing out of a machine, uh, says it's really good. So, you know, there, there's good and bad to it. Yeah, the copyright stuff's going to be interesting. I mean, we've had some chord cases recently, right, where, you know, one artist says, that song sounds like my song. That chord progression sounds like my chord progression, or that melody sounds like my melody. So there is that subjective element that comes into play. So if you're using a machine to create a voice, and another artist says, that sounds too much like me, uh, or, or, or a music label says, that sounds too much like my artist, does, does that have some parallels there? It might. We, we don't know. This is the wild, wild west. Yeah. And again, I go back to the late 70s and the early 80s when the sampling was just starting out. Everybody was sampling everything and never asking for any permission to do anything. And it wasn't until everything was codified and the uh, new copyright laws were, were created and, and, and a whole legal section was carved out for, for the issue of sampling that we began to see where things go. What's, I think, got people freaked out about artificial intelligence is that it seems to be happening really, really fast yeah. and seems to be really, really, really good. Uh, and remember, everything that we're hearing now is the worst this technology will ever be. It's only going to get better. I've, in fact, even in the last 48 hours, I've seen a couple of articles that uh, say that, okay, well, what you saw last week with artificial intelligence is nothing compared to what we've got for you this week. It's much smarter. <laughs> it's much quicker. It's, you know, whatever. So uh, it, it, it is... From that, from the point of view that this is going to usher in some serious change, yes, it's very scary. But from the point of view that this could make for new art, for new um, ways of dealing with information, for ways of dealing with you know drudgery and and, and boring tasks, well, you know, it, it could be something. A lot of jobs are going to be wiped out as a result of this disruption, but at the same time, a lot of jobs are going to be created as as people who are professionals using and dealing with and programming artificial intelligence. Yeah. Well, I could see, I mean, even, you know, bands that don't have lead singers or, you know, producers or musicians who prefer creating beats or instrumental, instrumental tracks to, you know, get creative and adding different kinds of voices and layers of voices to their work. So it could be useful there. But, you know, aside from the legal issues, Alan, I guess maybe there's also the ethical, like, let's say someone uses this to, to create not just an Oasis reunion, how about a, how about a Beatles reunion? Well, if, yeah. So, the issue, okay, so let's say that somebody does manage to create a new Beatles album using artificial intelligence. Okay, fine. Uh, what do the lyrics say? Uh, is there anything libelous and slander, sl mm -hmm. slanderous in those lyrics? Uh, are you trying to pass it off as the real thing? Uh, you know, there's, there's all kinds of, of, of issues that, that will inevitably crop up. But they will – listen, there's no turning back technology. Once it's out there, 
it's uh, it's 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 there for good. I mean, you know, we still have people mourning the loss of VHS tapes. Right? Yeah. Um, but you know, time marches on, things happen, and uh, eventually you have to come to grips with the technology that's that's out there. And this is going to be this is going to be a tricky one again. Not only because it's so versatile and you can use it in so many different ways for so many different things. Um, oh, by the way, I'll, I'll just stop there for a second. Have you ever heard of a company called Futuri? No. Futuri is uh, a company based out of the U.S., uh, and they have a AI program called Radio GPT. And what <laughs> they can do is create artificial, totally fake, on-air people who introduce songs and backsell songs and tell little snippets about the artists that they're about to hear, and they're all from a machine. Uh, look it up, Radio GPT. There are a number I of... I did hear uh, of that. It's like the, uh, the DJ 3000 on The Simpsons. Is. The Simpsons. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Exactly. And, it, you know, it's, 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 it sounds really lifelike, but you know, the, you can tell the, the humanity is not there just mm-hmm. yet. So th- this is this is another thing. You can program something to do something a human would do, but at this point, there is no um, there is no replacement for humanity. For example, if you were going to write a song, you know, Tammy Wynette, D I O or D I V O R C E. You know, if you're going to write a song about divorce and make it sound real and authentic, uh, you had better have gone through a divorce in real life. You better be a human that's gone through through a divorce in real life. That sort of thing, at this point, cannot yet be replicated by a machine. The machines are good at imitating, they are good at synthesizing, they are good at analyzing, but they're not good necessarily at creating in the sense that a a human will. Um, So these machines still need humans to provide inputs uh, which are called prompts, by the way, mm-hmm. and, uh, and 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 it, it, it's inevitably going to be used as some kind of tool or a multiple, you know, type of tool. Knowledge workers, creative types. Um, you know, if you're, for example, giving you a musician example, if you're writing uh, commercial scores, you know, music to be played in the background of a of a TV commercial, it's just incidental music. You can have a bunch of people in a room working on on that sort of stuff, or you can get an AI program to put it together very quickly. Um, Google came up with something just this week where they uh, where where its artificial intelligence music program will write you a song based on just text. So you can say you could type in, "Write me a song with Metallica style riffs and Lady Gaga vocals," and five minutes later, you'll have a song. Wow. That's pretty wild. Uh, more on all of this is mentioned at journalofmusicalthings.com. Alan, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us here today. You bet. No problem. All right. Cheers. Alan Cross, a music writer, broadcaster, historian, host of the Ongoing History of New Music podcast, and a journalofmusicalthings.com. It's an issue he's been writing about this week. Just where this technology is going, some of the questions it raises, both in terms of AI's ability to recreate these voices, but even the idea of just creation itself. It's an interesting point. If you ask, you know, chat GPT, write me a song about what it's like to go through a bad breakup or what it's like to grow up in a rough neighborhood. Write me a song that just sort of expresses my frustration with what's going on in the world. You know, something like what's going on by Marvin Gaye. Can you come up with that chat GPT? I don't know. Don't you need emotion, human experience to really capture that?
And who knows, maybe this technology will be able to do that soon enough. Welcome back. Thanks for being with us here on this Friday afternoon. Rob Breckenridge with you. A lot more still to get to here this afternoon. Uh, certainly food prices have been in the spotlight as food inflation has been running pretty hot. Good news is, in StatsCan's latest inflation data, uh, that rate of food inflation is finally starting to come down. But it still represents big year-over-year price increases. So, because we really don't have a choice as to whether to buy food, there's been a lot of scrutiny of those who sell it to us. The grocery store chains in particular, it's been quite a spectacle in Ottawa as some of these CEOs have been brought before our Commons Committee to answer questions uh, about food prices, whether they are gouging consumers, and further to that, how they're compensating their own executives. Uh, Galen Weston, president of Loblaws, uh, recently got a pretty big pay raise, which raised some eyebrows given the scrutiny the company's under for the amount they're charging for food. There's not necessarily a connection between food prices and what Galen Weston or any other CEO earns, but the optics were great. And then in a weird twist, we find out this week that Galen Weston is stepping down. And that this isn't new, that in fact, there was a search underway for his replacement last year. So why the pay raise? I mean, you know, companies are free to pay their executives what they feel they're worth. But surely they had to know that there was going to be some blowback on this. And especially if the guy's leaving anyway, then why do it? Uh, So that all seems strange. But does it raise any serious concerns here? How much of a vested interest do we have in how these companies operate, how and how much they pay their executives? There's an interesting uh, op-ed in the Globe and Mail today uh, on all of this. Joining us uh, for some thoughts is the author of that piece, uh, Anthony Shan, is director of shareholder advocacy at SHARE, a Toronto-based research and advisory firm that works with large investors to promote sustainability and inclusivity. Anthony, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me on. How much were you surprised or, or even mystified, I guess, by, you know, this whole sequence of events with Galen West and the pay raise and you know, his decision to leave? Yeah, uh, certainly, uh, you know, there are some eye-popping numbers uh, when it comes to, to CEO pay in Canada. So it is a bit hard to, to surprise me anymore. Uh, but certainly the timing of, of this raise uh, and then the decision to leave was, was still uh, a bit of a, of a shock to us. Um, in, you, you mentioned you know, that there isn't a, always a direct relationship between the, uh, the CEO pay and, and maybe the, the cost at the, uh, at the checkout line. Um, but when we see the, the relationship between uh, CEO pay and, and what frontline workers are making at, at, at Loblaws, for example, um, it, it's a pretty staggering uh, number, you know, 300 times the, the, the pay for a frontline worker versus, uh, versus the CEO. So certainly lots to... Uh, Lots to, to pause and think about there, um, but when it comes to uh, you know the decision here as a man- matter of uh, of good corporate governance, corporate management, you know Loblaws' reputation has just been dragged through the mud over the last number of years. Uh, whether it's the thirty-seven dollar chicken uh, that uh, that was famous online, mm-hmm. or uh, or you know the price freeze on on no frills product, or the rollback of Hero Pay. Uh, we did a media scan and just found overwhelming negative attention on this company. And then at the same time, to be, uh, you know, taking a, a huge pay increase 
on your way to the checkout line uh, is just a, a bit baffling. It is. I mean, the, the optics aren't great. I mean, as you say, the, the company's already taken a hit to its reputation. That, that certainly didn't help. Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's a concern for, for shareholders. So I represent a, a network of, of institutional investors that's like pension funds, uh, charitable foundations, universities as well, uh, who work with us to advance uh, environmental and, and social and governance concerns at uh, Canadian and, and U.S. companies. Uh, and we make recommendations on, on voting. We're recommending to, uh, to our clients, but also to other shareholders at Loblaws to vote against uh, the, the pay package at Loblaws at their AGM next month. Uh, the meeting's on May 4th. And at, uh, at Canadian companies, there's a, an item on, on the ballot, on the agenda for any AGM of a public company called a say on pay vote where investors have a, have a chance to, to vote up or down uh, on the pay package. So we're recommending to shareholders to, to vote against it. Um, I anticipate it will, of course, pass. Uh, Mr. Weston owns uh, about 50% uh, controlling share in the company either way. Um, and, you know, most investors are, are likely to uh, decide with management as a, as a kind of default position. But we're certainly uh, hoping to, to send a message to this company and to others um, that uh, these kinds of exorbitant pay increases while companies are facing huge controversy and while Canadians are suffering, uh, it, it is not okay. Out uh, out there in, in Calgary, um, you know, uh, of course, the Imperial Oil uh, AGM is coming up in a couple of weeks as well, and the Imperial was uh, was in front of Parliament yesterday. Uh, at the same time, uh, as Parliament was holding hearings on on Imperial's um, the, the crow oil spill uh, and and water contamination, uh, the Globe and Mail was also reporting that the CEO of Imperial Oil be the highest paid in the sector next year and get a huge pay raise as well so again investors are concerned about you know what uh what company executives are making while uh while really serious reputational and uh and other kinds of risks are, are being ignored the way in which these ceos are paid and I, I know you know there there are ways to sort of add up what represents total compensation and it does vary from company to company like in the case of uh, galen weston at Loblaws, um, you know, there was total compensation that's now up closer to $12 million, but that's not actually $12 million or $11.8 million in actual salaries. So typically, how are these CEOs compensated? Yeah, so uh, it, it, is, uh, it is usually an alphabet soup of different kinds of, uh, of stock options that, uh, that CEOs will have access to long-term and short-term. Uh, there's many different uh, ways that that they are um, calculated, you know, and in, in, in part, I think that's done that way to, to make it as confusing as possible, so, so people can't keep track of it. But we have a real concern about uh, about pay packages that are uh, overly reliant on stock options as part of uh, uh, you know as the, the bulk of of the uh, pay package, because when when CEOs are paid predominantly or, or inappropriately with uh, with stock options. It does tend to shift their focus towards uh, making sure that the stock price stays high, which of course is important, but it's not the only, uh, you know, the only metric. So, in the last few years, we've seen CEOs or companies um, uh, using huge amounts of, of corporate capital to, to buy back shares, which they're allowed to do. You know, nothing, nothing illegal or anything about that. But the company buys back shares shares of its own stock, which drives up stock prices, which inflates. The, you know, the the pay packages of directors and and, and executives. Um, some of the metrics involved here, uh, in the case of Loblaw, 
uh, were you know, really overly reliant on inflation-sensitive uh, uh, components of, of the company's business. So the fact that we've seen inflation uh, going up so dramatically in the last 12, 18 months um, and, and Loblaws benefited from it uh, in terms of its overall profits, it's also driving up uh, CEO and, and other executive compensation because the, the performance-based measures that are being, that are being measured uh, are, are really sensitive to in, inflation. Um, finally, uh, last kind of comment on, on that, uh, you know, we have uh, concern generally about the independence uh, of the process that Loblaws used to to set uh, its new uh, new executive compensation structure here. Uh, the consultant they used was not independent, uh, had other ongoing uh, work with the company, and uh, and so. We, we don't see that as, a, as an appropriately independent process, and, and it shows up in uh, in the way they made their assessment. So they changed the peer group of companies they compare to uh, in a way that was quite favorable to um, to the argument that uh, that was being made that Galen Weston was underpaid relative to his peers, and you know they, they changed what the comparisons were uh, in a way that that worked in the favor of that argument. Right, which, you know, I mean, it's, it's a matter for the company and its shareholders to sort out. I mean, certainly when we talk about these companies and shareholders, that includes a lot of us, pension funds, et cetera. So we do have some vested interest in the stock value of, of big blue chip Canadian companies. Uh, we certainly want companies to be profitable, to grow, to expand in Canada. Okay. So there, there is something to be said for successful, profitable business that... Um, you know, isn't losing money and has a, a rising share value. But to what extent can we claim or argue that we as Canadians or as taxpayers or as voters have any kind of a vested interest in the contracts that these CEOs are, are able to negotiate with these companies? Yeah, well, absolutely. We, we, we certainly share your perspective that we want companies to be successful. The investors I represent are, are long-term uh, investors. Most of them you know, are, are thinking about a fiduciary duty to pay out, whether it's uh, pensioners or uh, or charities to, to, to do granting on an ongoing basis. So they want to see these companies succeed as well. This isn't about, about tearing down a company in the slightest bit. We, we want the company to do well. Um, in terms of, you know, your question, do the Canadians have a, an interest in, in this question? Uh, I would say absolutely. There's a couple ways that Canadians uh, should be concerned about CEO pay and, and particular reasons why. Uh, the first one you alluded to there, which is that um, most of us have uh, you know, have an ownership stake one way or another in, in most of these Canadian companies. So whether we are lucky enough to have a pension plan or if we're invested in a, in a mutual fund, most of us are invested in, in kind of index funds that own many, many companies across the, you know, the TSX and, and other, uh, other markets. So we probably, you probably do own uh, indirectly or directly some shares in Lava. So, you know, in that sense, you should be concerned uh, about, uh, about pay. But as a, as a broader matter for, for all Canadians uh, to consider, uh, certainly we, we have a concern about uh, how CEO pay and, and uh, corporate profits relate to what we describe as a, a systemic risk of inequality. And that sounds, you know, kind of, uh, uh, you know, up, up, uh, up 10,000 feet view of things. But really the concern is that uh, it's bad for economic stability, for the social stability of, of this country to have huge inequality uh, among us. And when, uh, you know, when uh, Mr. Weston's pay package would take him over 300 times 
um, the uh, the average pay of a frontline law laws worker. Um, that's not to say he doesn't deserve to be paid paid well for what he does, um, but but that's a huge gap. Um, you know, think about think about how many hours three hundred is uh, versus one, and and how many more uh, hours of radio uh, you know you could do at that uh, at that number of hours. Um, it's it's just such a huge gap, and we do see that uh, overall uh, the growing gap between you know CEO pay and and the richest among uh, among us creates instability in the economy and instability in society, uh, and that is cause concern for concern for investors, but also for for all Canadians to see uh, that kind of stratification uh, in our society. Well, and, and yeah, I mean, there might be some some general sympathy for that notion, but I mean, you know, the idea of what it should or shouldn't be seems inherently subjective. I, I mean, is there an objective way to regulate this? I mean, is that what you're calling for here? What's what's the answer? Yeah, it's uh, it's a, a fair question. Certainly, you know, I don't think there is a a single metric or a single uh, relationship that uh, that there should be you know ratio that there should be between CEO pay and and frontline worker pay. Um, at Share, where, where I work, we have a set of proxy voting guidelines that many investors use to vote on these matters, and we have some guidelines that are out there. Other investor organizations, pen, pen, excuse me, organizations like pension funds, have their own guidelines as well, um, and you know they each they each have a slightly different uh, different metric in there uh, to say you know what is good what is a, a, a good framework for setting compensation. So we have a few pieces in there that we, uh, that we look at. We're, we're really hesitant about uh, any pay that is overly reliant on stock options. And there's some description in our policy, which you can find online that, that explains what that, you know, what the kind of uh, uh, perhaps tipping point is where we say that's too much. Uh, we have concern about, uh, about, pay ratios that are overly high. And again, there's a tipping point in there uh, that we think is, is just too much. Um, and we have concern about uh, about compensation that is uh, that is G-linked, uh, not, that's probably not a real word, but that isn't uh, connected enough to uh, to real measures of uh, performance uh, for the company. And that is too connected to just the stock price as the, as the primary measure. We'll leave it there. Much more at share.ca. Anthony, appreciate you joining us here this afternoon. Thanks for this. Thanks so much. All the best. There you go. That's uh, Anthony Shun, Director of Shareholder Advocacy at Share, uh, share.ca. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, is this something that concerns you, what CEOs are earning? Or if you work for a company, how the CEO's salary compares to your salary? I mean, yeah, it's, we've certainly seen an increase of the years in, in average CEO salaries That's, as it's become more competitive amongst companies to, to recruit these CEOs and the perception that, look, a good CEO is bringing a tremendous amount of value and what they're able to do with the company and the company's fortunes, its profitability, its stock price, you know, its bottom line, all of that. So I don't know if it's fair or reasonable to compare what uh, the CEO is doing in terms of decisions that, uh, you know, are multi-million or multi-billion dollar implication kind of decisions either way versus, you know, the individual impact of each worker. But look, a company that doesn't value its employees is, is not going to be a successful company. And so part of the problem here maybe is the perception that is Loblaw is treating its employees well. And if people already have the perception, well, maybe they're not, and then you hear about, you know, pay rates for the CEO, there's the optics, there's the PR, there's all of them. But still, even if you're not comfortable, even if that doesn't sit well with you, I'm not sure that the answer is to, to cap or limit it. 
Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.